Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. This season's broad theme is navigating uncharted territory. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society with me and Tiso. We are really excited today to be joined by Tony Hastrup, who is a senior lecturer in international politics at the University of Stirling. Tony specialises in the intersection of feminist international politics, security studies and regional studies. Tony, like you're a legend. You're an absolute legend. Like reading and looking over all your stuff. I was my mind was just blown. And I feel like you're part of a cohort of guests that we've had on that are more sort of in line with or situate more in international relations. And it's really exciting for me and T because we don't know anything about international relations, but we can kind of, we can kind of like present our, or think about things sociologically with regards to this stuff, but equally like it's literally us sat here learning from scholars like yourself. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Tony, it'd be really good for our listeners to sort of understand how you came to be working at the University of Stirling and your sort of trajectory, but also your relationship with international relations. Let's start a long, long time ago. No, I'm just kidding. I'm Nigerian. I was born to Nigerian parents, but I was actually born in Aberdeen. So I feel like I've always had this love for a Scotland, even though I grew up in Nigeria. You might know that like most Nigerian families, um, your option for careers are, they're not actually that limited. And it wasn't the case in my uh, family. However, I think sort of looking around me, I figured, sure, I'll be a lawyer. One of my grandparents was a lawyer. But I did my undergraduate degree in the United States. And I didn't realize that unlike the UK, you can't do a first degree in law. So you had to do pre-law, which can basically be anything, although most people did something like political science or international relations. And so I decided that I wanted to sort of do international relations as my pre-law. And as time went on, I realized that I actually really like this international relations gig and I didn't like lawyers that much. Um, (laughs) Keep in mind that my image of lawyers in this context was uh, watching a lot of episodes of uh, Law and Order and shows like that. So, you know, no offense to lawyers. I know really cool lawyers now. Um, Anyway, that's how I got into international relations. And then while I was doing my undergrad in the US in this fantastic campus, the one thing that seemed really strange to me, two things. One, there weren't a lot of black people in my stream of international relations. So you could do international security, economics, development, or human rights. And I was doing security. There weren't a lot of black people. And there were like five women in a really massive cohort. So we always stood out in class. And I thought that was very strange. And it wasn't actually until like my final year in college that I heard anything about sort of feminism or critical international relations. And I thought, okay, this is very strange. 
But it was also around the same time that I heard about a the European Union and what the European Union does. So I thought, okay, I'm going to switch it up a bit. And I moved to South Africa for my master's. And I was at the University of Cape Town for two years. Um, I also did some research with some organizations in Cape Town. So I sort of got that IR in the research sense in terms of my education, but I was very much working in the context of um, service delivery. And I think it really gave me a very different outlook to what I was interested in and how, especially how we can uh, think about the agency of those people that organizations like the European Union interacts with. And that's kind of what led to my PhD project. You know, I wanted to understand the relationship between the European Union and African countries, and particularly around the time when the African Union was emerging as an important actor in peace and security on the African continent. What year was that, Tony? So I started my PhD in 2007, although, of course, this was many years after the African Union itself had been formed. But a lot of the literature on the relationship between the EU and Africa, which tended to sort of emerge from the European perspective, did not really focus on security because, you know, there was always this thing about how the EU... It did not have a standing army, so is it really a security actor? And I wanted to challenge this because clearly the EU was having an impact on the African continent, which had implications for peace and security on the African continent. And I wanted to understand the sort of interactions that were going on between the EU, African actors, and in particular the African Union, and what that kind of meant for African agency in peace and security on the continent. Basically, that was my PhD. That is how um, that is how I got into this research area. By the time I finished my PhD, of course, like everything else, you sort of find gaps in the existing literature. You can't quite do everything in the PhD, but the glaring gap was sort of the lack of consideration of gender when gender was so obvious in terms of um, how... I understood the relationship between um, the European Union and the African Union um, in terms of um, how women were located in this particular field of security. That's kind of informed my research since. Four months after my Viva, I got a postdoc at Warwick. So I moved down south, <laughs> which was a bit further so than I wanted to. <laughs> um, the life of an academic. <laughs> And then uh, a couple of years later, I got my first academic job at the University of Kent. And I was at Kent until last year when I moved back to Scotland. And that's where I am right now, (laughs) in Bonnie, Scotland. Nigeria, the States, the UK, Kent. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And I guess we were talking in our pre-chat a little bit about international relations and I was saying that me and Tiso have been keen to sort of widen the types of disciplines that we try and bring onto the show and international relations has definitely been one of them because it seems like as a discipline you guys seem to be grappling with race and racism in the global and local context quite urgently. Would you say that's the case? Absolutely. I mean, part of it has to do with what is happening in the world today. It also has to do with where it's happening, right? So um, there's been this narrative of the US as a very powerful 
um, country, but it's also a country that has its hands in a lot of pies. What is going on domestically in the U.S., we sort of see echoes of it in terms of what the U.S. is doing internationally as well. In a sense, this is not new. This is in nowhere new. We were talking about issues around racism, race and racism uh, in sort of thinking about U.S. activities, say, in Vietnam, for example. We were talking about race and racism in the formation of the League of Nations, the precursor to the United Nations, because of some of the views held by those people who were proponents of uh, the League of Nations. And of course, we were talking about it way before then, because, you know, colonialism, the idea of going out there to other countries to colonize them, it is a practice of international relations. So, of course, this predates the actual discipline of international relations, but suddenly the practice of international relations, there's a lot of racism um, embedded there, and it would be silly not to consider the um, work of race um, and whiteness. But, of course, I think other things going in the world have facilitated that conversation, right? So in the context of our country here, discourses around Brexit have brought issues around racism to the fore, discourses around how we should think about empire and now what does global Britain actually mean? And you can translate that in France, discourses of racism, thinking through France's relationship with its former colonies. So it's everywhere in international relations, especially in the practice of international relations. But I think you're absolutely right that we are grappling with it more in terms of what it means within the discipline. And there's some really exciting work um, happening and some really exciting scholars doing a lot of this work. I was going to say, Tony, if I were looking at the the model of the UN, when I think of the UN, I tried, I think of a kind of utopian body that tries to move away from the kind of the kind of sins of the past of like the immediate post, post-World post War II period, right? So we're talking... Peace. Yeah, the kind of peace, everyone together. But obviously we know historically most nations of the global north were have deeply racist and sexist practices and I would assume that these practices become embedded in the structural programs that they deploy to the global south. Somehow that when we reflect our policies on the global south, project those knowledges on them, it kind of hides what we're doing. We don't really speak about the kind of misogyny, the racism here, but we're keen to point it out in developing countries. One of the retorts people when they're talking about Islamic countries is look how they treat women. But equally, look how we treat women here. We do the same thing here, so we're not much different. And also, like what David Waring told, like spoke to us about on a previous podcast too. Even if you're looking at other countries and how they treat women, mm. that usually can be traced back to Britain's influence on that country. Like you can't separate these things from colonialism mm. and empire, which is yeah. what I think Tony's work does really well. And I think, in particular, in the way you describe these various initiatives, like national action plans that are deployed to countries in the global south I had to stop reading I was like oh my god I can't believe they put together like national action plans for countries in the global south without including people from the global south but seeing that written I was like what and obviously but, that might not be the case in all of them but it's like it's so backwards but is that similar to like the structural adjustment programs of the IMF and all this there's a, a consistent theme of the south projecting epistemologies and structural programs to reflect, I assume, 
I guess, a, a kind of Orientalist view of the South. So they are the binary opposite of us. So we need to lead them. You mean the North protecting? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Chantal said she was shocked. It might shock you as well to know that, you know, countries in the global south actually end up writing in some cases the national action plans of global south countries which uh sorry countries in global north end up writing um the national action plans of countries in the global south which of course then calls into question the extent to which the priorities in the global south are actually being served i mean one of the things that i think the tools especially the critical tools uh, uh, of feminism gives to me is to be able to look at some of these issues in a bit more nuance i guess than situating them in binaries against each other yeah. right so you know i don't assume in my work that everything that comes out of the global north is necessarily intended to be harmful although intentions don't always matter so actually it still be violent yeah absolutely so i think um, leaving space for thinking about what the unintended consequences is, is very important for me and in the context of my own work. At the same time, we also sort of see obvious violences um, from the global north uh, to the global south, right? So one of the things that I'm reflecting on right now, and I, you know, I posed this question on Twitter the other day, and I did get some interactions, some really important interactions that I'm very grateful for. But comparatively to times when I post things about my cat, it's like <laughs> deathly silence, right? <laughs> so the issue had to do with Mali and the fact that Mali has recently had a coup. On the one hand, you had some people who were very much like, this is a coup and it's just bad and it's just a horrible coup. And a coup is always bad. I grew up in a military dictatorship. I would not wish it on my worst enemy if that person existed. A coup is always bad. But I think not considering the state of the democratic government prior is also a bit silly, and that's putting it politely, to not give that context of saying the coup is bad is a bit problematic and a bit and, and a bit disingenuous if you're a scholar of that particular region. But for my own part, in terms of like the re my research and the things I'm interested in, one of the things that I've been looking at is what we call European Union training missions. So I said to you earlier that the European Union does not have a standing army, but its member states contribute to missions that help to train militaries in other countries. A lot of these countries are in Africa, one of which is Mali. And the EU took this on and presents it as a relatively benign activity, unlike, say, a direct intervention, like a French intervention in Mali, for example. And now we have a coup. So I asked the question, well, all the people who have been for years asking for the EU to have a military so that it can really become a security actor, whereas there are those of us, especially feminists, who have been cautioning against the increase in militarization of EU foreign policy. We sort of think we see the effects of it now. And I believe it was yesterday, either yesterday or this morning, where, you know, Germany... <laughs> 
has admitted that some of the people who participated in the coup were trained by this training missions. I don't necessarily think EU trains military. Military has a coup and this is always what's going to happen. But I also think it would be very naive to not consider the broader context within which this training is happening and what the effect of training is, what type of training is actually happening, right? And I had this discussion uh, earlier on in the summer uh, when we, I, was, I was speaking to the increase in militarization of the police. And as somebody who does international relations, I'm quite fascinated by the work that uh, sociologists, especially within uh, criminology, are doing in this regard domestically. But oftentimes, we don't actually link our work together at all, which for me has been something, a definite gap in my knowledge. But one of the things we know is, you know, when countries in the global north send out police to train uh, externally, what are they training them to do? What is the logic around police training? When we know that in countries like the United States, the very basis of the police existing was uh, to police slaves to ensure continued subjugation of Black people and other minoritized people. Is that being um, sort of unraveled in the context of now training in the global South, for example? And for me, given that a lot of this training that is happening, say, between Europe and countries in Africa is happening where there are former colonial relationships. I want to know to what extent is this um, kind of training, whether it's just general security sector reform or specifically uh, military training, to what extent isn't it replicating the same patterns of colonial interactions, right? And what is the impact of that in the end? So when I go back to the story of Mali, where Indeed, a coup has happened. It is important to acknowledge that although a coup has happened, and that is bad, that is bad for democracy, that is bad for the people of Mali, it is also not a coincidence that the democratic, and I put that in scare air quotes, leader is one that was backed by the French. And a a lot of people in Mali have not been happy with French activities in that country. And that's not new. Right. So it's new in that it's coming to the news to all of us uh, this last week. But it's not new if you understand the historical relationship between Mali and France. So, I, you know, I I like to think that that's part of the joy of being able to do this research is um, a bit more nuanced to what international relations is. And instead of thinking through those nuances, you cannot ignore the work of race and racism, and you cannot ignore the impact of, say, colonialism, although I don't think it explains everything. Intermittently over the past few years, we've tried to sort of talk about the relationship between the EU and the African Union and the countries that are part of that. We have a little bit, haven't we, T, but not yeah. in as much detail as that. Like, that is mind-blowing and also just made me think so much. Like, it's connections that we've tried to make a lot on the podcast but haven't quite had the language or the skills to do that so wow mic dropped for tony whenever i think of ir the debates that i kind of see on tv seem to be value free so it doesn't the debates don't contain those those kind of nuances they're talking as as nation states as plain actors between each other the book i think of is um kant's perpetual peace 
like the idea of nation states acting as actors, right? And sometimes they have their own personalities, but they do not contain the same values or the same domestic issues that they have internationally. <laughs> You're not wrong in the sense that that is the sort of perception of the sort of dominant hegemonic knowledge around IR. Mm. And I can definitely tell you now that it's probably not um, the kind of uh, canon that my work or the work of a lot of people I work with would sit within, if you see what I mean. So Mm. yes, mainstream IR is supposed to be, you know, states are, you know, these actors in international system. It took a very long time for other uh, theorists to sort of try to connect what is happening at the domestic level with what's happening at the international level. And that's what um, areas of study like foreign policy analysis has been quite useful in doing. Sorry to interrupt you. Full disclosure, Tiso loves the old racist like can I don't. (laughs) (laughs) No, No, they give us some good lessons that we said that problematic facts. No, just, just how, when, I, when you've encountered international relations, when they talk on TV, when you watch films, they talk about states as actors. And this is a, a continue from the canon. And that's like, I guess, like I said, that's the mainstream appeal. I think certainly there is a there is a mainstream. I mean, if you if you are interested in IR Kant, um, my former colleague, Sean Malloy at the University of Kent, has written a, a book about Kant, which I think is actually a really good book. So <laughs> if you're interested not really my cup of tea, you know, uh, in terms of Kant. When we think about the discipline of um, international relations, we sort of emerged after World War II and how that's evolved. Unsurprisingly, the majority of what is considered the canon is very white. white men. Yes, uh, mainly men. And uh, mainly North American and specifically the United States. Uh, with a few exceptions here in the United Kingdom. Now, of course, states are actors, but the United when 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 we say states are actors, who do we mean, right? Mm-hmm. So when our prime minister goes out, uh, say a G seven meeting, he is potentially the United Kingdom, but he's also a particular administration of the United Kingdom. He's also representing agreements that have been previously signed that he has to honor that go beyond his party affiliation that he just, you know, has to do, whether it's, say, the climate agreements, for example, right? So when he goes out there to another climate meet, he is representing the United Kingdom. He's the United Kingdom. Uh, He's not just Boris Johnson or just the leader of the Conservative Party. And in that sense, yes, we can use terms like the state is an actor. When we sometimes when we do that, we sort of remove responsibility for some of the practices of certain administrations and certain parties within a particular state. Uh, and so, in the context of my own work, uh, especially when, we, when when I'm looking at the European Union, right? So one of the things we found a lot is, especially in the last sort of four years, where people talk about say the European Union over there versus, say, France or the UK, I'm very quick to say, well, actually, the European Union cannot exist without its member states. So (laughs) think about, you know, what is it that the states are putting in there? What is the logic of why they're putting it in there? It doesn't mean that the secretariats don't exist. It doesn't mean the commission doesn't exist or that the commission doesn't have its own 
agency to act, but it is acting on behalf of its membership by by virtue of that it's also acting on behalf of us or at least in the uk it was ha- acting on behalf of us we might not like everything it does and that goes for you know in the same way that i might not like everything that, that is happening in westminster or everything that's happening in holyrood i certainly do not like everything that is happening on behalf of us in brussels but we need that nuance we need to have that discussion and i think unfortunately what uh, and why it's important to interrogate this idea of the state as an actor we to a certain extent have also allowed our politicians to tell us it's not the case as a way in so that as a way for them to escape a certain level of accountability whether within the country within regions or at the international level right so it's an it's if you say the state is an actor the uk is an actor right the uk is an actor in the conflict in yemen what does that actually mean well it means that this current administration is happy to keep selling weapons to saudi arabia to use in yemen regardless of why you think that they're using it or not we cannot discount that fact that these are political choices that are happening done by a state political choice made within a state to sell weapons for economic reasons that then have an international impact so you know i always say this is very simple word and it seems like a cop out but i think nuance is very important and I, i and i think this is one of the things critical perspectives do for you that we're not just you know solving the problem of um insecurity but actually thinking through why why is it the way that it actually is how does the institution like the EU or or the African Union how do you embed nuance in the institutions like these to have those structural outcomes as much as i love institutions because that's what i study i think people within them are also very important right we cannot discount the fact that people within institutions are very important in the european union that's why it matters who the commissioner is right that's why we have all of this conversation about what sort of parties get elected to the european parliament regardless of um what we think the hierarchies of power is right um we know how uh, the council in the european union which re- you know which is the sort of member state representations we know how it functions how they deal with each other you know if if say denmark is unhappy with a particular budget and you know it finds some allies that has an impact on the broader eu budget and then it has an impact on what the eu does in say foreign policy for example if say then i wanted to research um what the eu was funding in foreign policy and i wanted to know the origins of you know how they decided that this was going to be a policy priority it might then make sense to sort of investigate the different uh, interactions and and sort of the different perspectives that eventually led to what had happened so that would be one example of how i think you can sort of build nuance another way uh, using the example of the african union uh, especially in the context of the work that i've been doing on women peace and security is in some cases critical actors matter okay. so i look at the context of the african union and the fact that the african union is a much younger organization if i'm being frank to a certain extent uh less institutionalized when you compare to the european union and again we can put that down to the fact that it's not as old 
it's fighting more fires than the European Union in the sense that it's trying to deal with the peace and security issue while it's also trying to build an institution. And yet, when I look at an area like women, peace and security linked to gender equality, which the EU is supposed to have been doing since 1957, the African Union is actually quite progressive on women, peace and security specifically. And part of why that's the case is because they've been key individuals who are actually driving this policy, who are trying to institutionalize it. I wouldn't say that they're necessarily successful yet, but again, if I was simply comparing the regional institutions, they're way ahead in terms of the work that they do every day. Um, and that's down to um, who a, the former chairperson of the African Union chose to appoint to that particular position. So, you know, uh, within the sort of work that I do, we know, of course, structures matter, that these institutions, you know, they can be quite overbearing on individual action, but it would also be a mistake not to acknowledge individual agency and the possibilities it might have to change um, or at least to introduce uh, transformative potential within institutions. I think one of the things that your scholarship has definitely helped me with over the past year, Tony, is thinking more critically about the EU. Um, and I would say that that's something which me and Tisa have gone on a journey with um, since the, re- the EU referendum. We obviously saw so much of the racism um, that was happening in the UK in the build up to the referendum. We saw the murder of Joe Cox. We saw the aftermath of the referendum more racism, more xenophobia, all this stuff. And it kind of binarised our view of what the EU was and what and what the vote to leave um, the EU was for UK. And in sort of unlearning that binarisation, we've both been sort of returning to the complicated and quote-unquote non-progressive nature of the, of the EU. Just thinking about actors and the possibility for actors to make changes like if we look at the EU and the makeup of who sits within the EU so like it's something I think it's over 50% of the people of colour black people and people of colour that were part of the EU were from the UK like what like even if you've got a problematic institution and black faces in high places don't change stuff even if we're just talking on a representation point of view which only gets us to a certain extent the EU like what is going to happen there it's a scary time for international relations as well as it being a scary time for Britain itself leaving the EU. How you're talking really critically about nuance is definitely something that I can do more within my life when I talk about the EU and also something that we've yeah just been in the process of unlearning basically because we were just up against so much racism basically. <laughs> you know we always we always had this joke right that hand on heart I was not I was not for the United Kingdom leaving the EU, uh, partly because I, I I am wedded to the ideal of the EU, not necessarily the EU itself, but the idea of regional solidarity, of you know communities of peace uh, that can um, leverage their shared history while still maintaining um, their individuality and so on and so forth. I'm sure that, you know, some other people will have other things to say around, you know, what what does it mean for the economy, for example? But despite that, I was never naive about the EU. 
And if anything, you know, the running joke was like, sometimes we think it's our fault that Brexit happened because we'd been so critical, right? But I don't think of it as critical, you know, in the in, in the sort of critical bad sense, but actually, you know, critical from the perspective of someone who believes and someone who loves the idea of what this could be. So, for example, one of the reasons around Brexit is, has been said to be around immigration. But as somebody who works in the EU, it's still an argument that I find surprising. I mean, I find it surprising not because this happened or that people made that assumption. But when I sort of think about how the links were made, it's really surprising to me, right? So people voted for Brexit because they didn't, you know, they were very wary about immigration and immigration from the EU. But actually, if you really delve down, it wasn't really about immigration from the EU because, you know, you don't see people in London complaining about the Swedes or the French, right? They're complaining about people from Eastern Europe, so people who are racialized, who are minoritized. They're complaining about Roma people who are severely marginalized in the entirety of Europe. And personally, I don't think that the EU has actually done enough it's something they're finally starting to look into, but it's absolutely terrible, the EU track record. And of course, we can then talk about immigration outside of the UK, instead of thinking about EU responses. But when I, even when I'm looking at those EU responses, it's about more member states. What are member states giving power to the EU for? In 2015, I read a document from uh, a UK official that said, well, if you don't give money to uh, Frontex, which is the EU's border force, and people die, it becomes a deterrence. Keep in mind, we're still having that same argument today, right? So go look at all the ads that want to deter people from coming over on boats from France. And then a lot of people died in one day. And then we suddenly changed our tune. We must do something. We must really save them. Uh, it's human trafficking. And that's what we should really come back because, you know, frankly, it was bad PR. But then we went back to our ways. We still have countries that are continuous, have always been racist. They refuse to accept anymore. Asylum seekers, despite the fact that, you know, they've already agreed that this would be a shared quote unquote burden. I have a a big problem with calling it a burden because by and large, if you look at proportionally the amount of immigrants that Europe or the European Union specifically as a whole takes within the different member states, is it's nothing compared to say what Kenya takes or, you know, what Uganda takes, for example. So but nevertheless, you know, you had this discourse that, you know, it has to be a shared burden because every member state still controls its borders, which seemed very contrary to the argument that was being made here about why we needed to tighten immigration because the EU had absolute control. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> so, I mean, when you look at those two things together, the idea isn't that, you know, the EU came out good and the UK totally just, you know, messed everything up. No. When you look at it, especially when you say you take an issue like migration or you take an issue like, you know, solidarity uh, during the euro crisis and support for greece there are big problems there but those problems are not simply problems in brussels alone 
And those problems are not simply in London alone. They're also problems of us, the people. I always said during the Euro crisis that for me, it did not just signal punitive Eurogroup engagements with a member state. It signaled fundamentally a lack of solidarity. Because in the end, why would those countries have chosen to act in the way that they did, right? So it wasn't just the EU that was making this. It wasn't like the commission was just making a decision. Tony, can you explain what the EU did to Greece? The narrative goes that the EU was quite punitive towards supporting uh, Greece during the financial crisis, imposing what some might refer to, some people who are familiar with the 1980s, types of structural adjustment programs, austerity, which is a language we'll be familiar with here in the UK, to ensure that you know, Greece does what the EU wants. Now, that's a good basic argument. But who is the EU? Who are we calling the EU here? Well, it's the member states who use the euro. And indeed, even the member states who don't use the euro, but whose budget will be affected by what it is that the European Union as a whole does for Greece. So fundamentally, to me, what we see is a lack of solidarity. And why do we see this lack of solidarity? It's not simply because certain leaders of certain states are taking these decisions. Within the EU, all states are democracies. In the end, they feel that they are answerable to their citizens. So what should we do? Go look at the polls in Germany. Did the Germans want an absolute bailout for Greece? No, they didn't. So... Germany, and you you can see um, from the different um, stories that the Greek negotiators said during the time, they had a more or less good relationship in terms of, you know, everyday discussions with the leadership in different countries. But then they go back to their capitals and you have to (laughs) talk to your taxpayers as well, at least, you know. So I think in an ideal world, the EU would work like Eurovision, right? So we, we, we know that the Irish votes will likely come to the UK and vice versa. But that is not necessarily what we're getting, even after all of this year. People have to punish each other. <laughs> yes. So when I think of the EU, I think of a supranational body, right? It doesn't really embody that kind of the messiness of the domestic level. What you just said to me just there, Tony, it makes you think of like maybe the European Union has failed in containing the rivalries it was set up for. They still punish each other and commit those acts of, I guess, state sabotage or that they used to do, but we used to go to war before. But now they do it through i.e. not doing a bailout or... Austerity. I'm not necessarily sure it's a sabotage, more like self-preservation hasn't gone away, right, within the international system. But at the same time, you know, on the one hand, we can and we should critique a a neoliberal system that allows austerity to be an option, but we have to... we, We cannot critique it simply on the basis of that's the EU and it's precisely because they have some supranational um, abilities that they're that way. When we enacted austerity in this country for so long, and we, we still have the effects of it here, mm-hmm. like we, can, we cannot remove that discourse because we're critiquing the EU and vice versa. And again, this is where, why I always say, you know, the nuance matters. If you think, as I did, that there should have been more solidarity, then 
austerity shouldn't have been an option in the same way that I don't think structural adjustment programs were any good uh, in the 1980s. But then we ourselves, we did austerity really well, depending on, <laughs> on what side you're, you're on here. And I think that we, we shouldn't forget that. Like we didn't do austerity because of the EU in the same way that the EU didn't do austerity because of the UK but rather this, the structure of the system itself. And of course, there's a lot to beyond what's happened in Europe. There's a lot to say around how the EU engages with the rest of the world. Uh, in my own area, looking at Africa in particular, the way it tried to develop what it called economic partnership agreements, which is sort of this agree- like kind of free trade agreement that is ostensibly, supposedly, to comply with the World Trade Organization rules, but to my mind, actually did a lot to fragment regionalism in Africa, which is amazing given that the EU itself tends to promote regionalism as an intrinsic good of international relations. But because it wanted this economic partnership agreement, it was happy to sort of do it with Southern Africa, West Africa, East Africa. And of course, the countries weren't all the same in those sub-regions either. And they tried to leverage every power it had to ensure that this deal worked for it, right? So, you know, in that area, you can't absolutely blame the EU because the EU trade is negotiated at a supranational level. So it's a big problem, you know, big problems there. But that does not preclude the fact that um, UK practices in foreign policy can also be problematic. You'll find that most people who do study the EU look at the EU in this way. It's not naivete, so to speak, but nuance. Nuance, that's what I'm taking. (laughs) Tony, so if you, just two, two things I think it'd be really great to end on. Number one, please could you explain how the African Union came about what its intentions were, what its aims were, and what it does now. Because I think I read somewhere that you had written about it being sort of developed in line with some feminists and some Pan-Africanist thought as well. And also, I know we've been talking about it throughout this episode, but actually explaining to us why and how the EU has a relationship with the African Union and what that means. So I'll start with the question of the African Union. So the African Union, as it is now, was actually formed just in 2001. But that wasn't necessarily the beginning of the African Union. So the African Union succeeded an organization known as the Organization for African Unity, which was founded in 1963. When the OAU, as it was known, was founded, its main purpose was... um, creating a system to ensure that former colonial powers did not intervene in the sovereignty of the new emerging African states, right? And of course, 1963 is significant. I mean, that entire decade is significant for a lot of reasons. But 1963 was also the the year that, you know, Algeria was absolutely (laughs) done, Um, With France, 1960 was when you saw a lot of um, other African countries gain their independence from former colonial powers. And so you had this organization that was formed of newly independent states determined to ensure that other uh, states that weren't yet independent in 1963 did attain their independence. 
But fundamentally, when that's your sole purpose, I mean, I guess the thing I should say is that for that reason, at the very beginning, the OAU was a political organization, right? So whereas when we sort of think about the EU that kind of started as this economic um, coal and steel community, which is quite economic focused, it was quite different from the OAU, even though it sort of started later. And the OAU um, had different types of leaders, uh, military leaders, dictators for life, democratically elected leaders. And that was fine because, you know, singular goal, we do not want continued interference of, um, of uh, former colonial powers. Now, within, amongst these different types of leaders, some of them drew on ideas of Pan-Africanism that people on the continent and people of African descent all over the world could come together as one, you know, from the Americas eh, to Africa, anywhere, that we could come together as one. And there's a whole, you know, Pan-African, Pan-Africanist uh, philosophy behind that. And if that's something you're interested in, I would suggest to read some of the work that's already been done by uh, Robbie Shilliam, who's based on John Hopkins. So you had this, but to my mind, it wasn't really enacted in practice because for me at the heart of Pan-Africanism is the people. It's not states. It's not the preservation of power. It's about people coming back together. I mean, it's the ultimate, it could have been the ultimate expression of solidarity of pride, of agency within this international system that we live in. By the 1990s, you had an OAU that was having to reckon with the aftermath of the Cold War, but had not been able to have any power to stop one of the most horrific acts of human violence the world had ever seen, which was Rwanda. And it was also very clear that on the entire continent, a big issue had to do with violent conflict. And you had this organization that had the apparatus, or at least had some structure that was supposed to deal with insecurity, but couldn't actually enact that because it didn't really have any teeth. I mean, how do you deal with a country whose leader is a member of OAU? And it, that's the leader that is committing some of these acts, right? Could you just tell us a few sentences about what happened in Rwanda, just to con- further to contextualize the argument you're making now? Right. So in Rwanda uh, in 1994, there was a genocide. And this genocide killed approximately 800,000 people in about 100 days. It killed people who were mostly of the Tutsi background and some moderate Hutus. 1994 was not the beginning of the war. To a certain extent, 1994 was not the end of the war because some of the bases of this conflict spilled over into other countries like Burundi, where you still continue to have the impact of that particular conflict. But in 1994, eh, the OAU did not have the funding or the willpower to do anything. And when it appealed both in terms of individual countries who are members of the OAU, but also the OAU, appeal to the United Nations Security Council for support. This did not happen, right? So this was a, 
it was a great tragedy for people on the African continent, but it was also a great scandal of international relations. But basically, to my mind, 1994 sort of lit the Kindle that then created the African Union in 2001. Now, the African Union is set up slightly differently because one of the ethos behind the African Union is the move from what they call the move from non-interference to non-indifference. And what that means is under the OAU, because each country is supposed to be sovereign, unless you were invited in, you couldn't just say, hey, horrible leader, you're doing something bad. We're coming there to help the people, which is sort of the principle of non-interference. Now, when you go to non-indifference, the idea is when there's a crime against humanity being committed, that the African Union has the absolute right to do something. Now, what that doing something actually means is <laughs> can vary, as we, we're sort of seeing right now. So one of the critiques that somebody I saw recently levied on the African Union is that whereas the African Union is quite loud when you have what we call unconstitutional changes of government where you have a coup, it has not been very good then uh, defending against uh, leaders for life. So sure, if you, if you change the constitution to extend your term, even though that is in a way against the spirit of democracy, because there is a constitution that now allows you to be there, they don't really do that much. Do you see what I mean? But if you then have like an army that takes over from an elected head, um, they're very loud and, and quite swift to action. So, I mean, it depends on how you see it. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you know, glass half full, you sort of see, well, at least they're doing something. You know, maybe you can't deal with, you don't have power to deal with everything. Glass half empty, it's a bit problematic because we do need some sort of consistency. So you had that as sort of the thing that was sort of pushing the African Union. But from my perspective, in terms of the work that I do, one of the other fascinating things about the African Union is that it chose to embed the idea of gender equality within the union itself. And this idea of gender equality comes through in terms of the peace and security work that it does, but also thinking through in terms of the... Um, institutions and uh, the frameworks that it's championing. So by 2003, we kind of had a legal continental uh, framework around gender equality and women's rights. It hasn't been signed or ratified by all member states of the African Union, but this seems to be um, one of the things that they're working towards. In terms of the relationship between the European Union and uh, the African Union or Africa, I mean, I, I imagine you'll be unsurprised to know that the genesis of this relationship is colonialism, right? So one of the things that I found very fascinating when I was getting into EU, Africa, things in general, was EU foreign policy literature has this myth of EU didn't really do foreign policy until much later on, right? So in 1957, with the Treaty of Rome that established what we now know as the European Union, the assumption was that the EU didn't really do foreign policy until much later. And then when it did it, it was around economics. And this, of course, very much focused on Africa, but also focused on countries 
in the Caribbean and Pacific countries, basically for mainly former colonies of the UK, France, Belgium, the Netherlands. But actually, if you look at the treaty in 1957, France and Belgium, with the Netherlands to a certain extent, fought to ensure that a relationship was maintained between the uh, community, the European Economic Community, and African former colonies, right? So in the political science sense, to my mind, even if the method of interaction was economics, this was a very political relationship. Nobody asked the Africans, hey, do you want to be included in the Treaty of Rome as we set up this new uh, European uh, regional integration body? And so I always argue that, you know, the Africa is intrinsic to the nature of European integration itself. And this is partly why even the EU, whatever its best intentions, without admit, if it doesn't admit how this linkage came to be, um, it would find it very difficult to entangle from a the hierarchical nature of the relationship. And of course, you know, in subsequent years, uh, this hierarchical relationship was maintained because of a, what we call a donor-recipient logic, where the EU had the money, was the donor, and gave it to African countries, often, to an extent, perhaps better than some other donors, allowed for some agency on the African part, but... Uh, and we see this in the context of the African Union. The EU does allow from, for some African Union innovation and for agency. But how long this lasts for in each program, I think uh, we can call into question because the EU does hold the purse strings. And I think it's going to be increasingly difficult. I didn't know that that was how the relationship came about because France and Belgium were like, listen... Put our put our colonies on the agreement. Like, I, <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think it was. I I'm an optimistic person, right? So, I don't think that the people who were fighting for this necessarily wanted it because of nefarious purposes. But then I've also lived on this planet for a while, so you know. Consistent <laughs> with um, like in the League of Nations, when China was asking to be considered to be equal, and they were like, no, 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 we we can't be do this. It's not something we the UK mainly was pushing for this. We can't consider these people equal. And so, I, I, again, I think it's naive to presume that states don't act like this. They will try to push their own interests to a super, uh, super national level. But what kind of interested me is donor-recipient um, relationship. So it's a binary relationship that suggests that that the, the donor can push certain agendas forward. So the recipient might say, want to focus on prevention, but the donor said, no, 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 it, it's whatever it, I want to push. You can't really argue that, really, because I'm the money, right? And it opens up a kind of world of, like, a can of worms, because I start thinking about China and their relationship with the, Afri with the African Union and the money they're providing right now. So I'm thinking, is this, is this, are we repeating the same thing over again, but with this time with a different kind of donor? Tony, my mind is absolutely blown. Like, please, can you just come on, like, once a month and give us, like, the down low on what is happening in international relations and what we should, like, honestly, I'm 
I'm sat here just thinking I need to read I need to read but that's what I always feel like when we have guests on to be honest that <laughs> like, like yourself so inspiring thank you so much for joining us Tony. thank you Tony. thank you, um, thank you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Patrons, another episode for you over on the Patreon website. Thank you again so much for your support. And listeners, we'll see you again next week. Bye. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our patreon if not you can always support us by subscribing rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform